So we're going to continue a series called Marked. Uh, we're studying the book of Mark. It is one of the gospels, what's called a synoptic gospel. If you're not familiar with that term, it means it's one of the three to the kind of parallel. There's three gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then there's the fourth gospel, which is the gospel of John, which is a completely different thing in a way, right? It's a testimony about Jesus, a testimony about Jesus, but it's written in more of a love language versus Mark, uh, Matthew, Luke. They're written more kind of a historically if that makes sense. Okay, so we're going to study the book of Mark, continue to. I'd encourage you to read it. It's 16 chapters. It's super easy to read. I say this often in Family Bible. If you hear all the time, you've heard me say it before, but you know, when I'm preaching from the Word, don't take my word for it. Like, look at it yourselves. One of the beautiful things that we believe about God is that He's making Himself known to people. And so the way we can learn and understand Him better is by reading the Word, whether that's in a church setting like this, whether that's in a home a Bible study, maybe on your own. Just reading God's Word, and you will be immensely blessed because He is making Himself known to His people. We talked for a while now about this kind of uh, season of preparation to give you a little bit of a synopsis of where we're at, right? Like Jesus came in the Gospel of Mark, they just go straight into his ministry. There's no birth narrative. We talked about Christmas over Christmas. That's not in the Gospel of Mark. He goes right into the ministry of Jesus, his call, and his calling of people to follow him. And right now where we're at in the book is we're between this, in this season of apostolic preparation, which means that Jesus called some people to himself, and he said, come follow me. And then he said, for a few of you, I'm going to send you out. I'm going to apostle you, right? So it's an active thing. And what has struck me as we've studied this text is that between that moment when he said, I'm going to do it, and now what we're going to finish today is this training period for those who are going to be sent out. So, spoiler alert, uh, next week, Jesus is going to send the people out. He's serious about this, right? So, the season of preparation, while they might have been thinking, hey, I'm ready right now to go, I bet you when Jesus said go, they probably thought, oh, I'm not, I'm not really ready yet, you know? So, we'll talk about that next week, but we have this uh, training period for the apostles. I also wanted to say to you that in the Gospel of Mark, I heard someone say recently, they said, the gospel of Mark does not let us have any room to believe that Jesus is not God. Like, G Mark from the get-go just sets down and says, Jesus is God, period, that's it, and now we're going to tell you the story about God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And it's not a book about debate or theories, it's like, this is a fact for John Mark, and he's written to the church about it. And so, in the text already, what we've studied so far, Jesus has demonstrated that he has power over demons. We've seen that repeatedly whenever the, the, the people are, are, you know, Jesus comes to them, the, the demons say, don't come near to us. It happens over and over again in the Gospel of Mark. We have seen that he has power over um, nature, right? Last week we talked about calming the storm that happened. And then he has power over sickness. There's something in his ministry that he drives illness from people. It just happens. We're gonna hear more about that today. And then I, I wanted to say this, because we can be amazed by that stuff, that he's got power over nature and power over sickness and power over demonic forces and the spiritual battle. But check it out. The fundamental argument that Mark is making, and I believe Jesus was making in his ministry, is he has power over sin. Sin is nothing more or less than the brokenness we experience in the world. It's everything that's wrong. And Jesus has demonstrated by his acts that he has power over sin and specifically to forgive sin. And so that's all already happened in the Gospel of Mark. Like all those things have been shown again and again already. Hopefully you've been reading along with us as we've been studying the Word. But then today we'll talk about this really awesome passage of Scripture. And it's got it's one very clear theme to me. 
It's this idea of people who are desperate for Jesus. Last week we talked about the apostles in the boat going across and the storm blows up and they get desperate for Jesus. You see, they don't start desperate for Jesus, but they get desperate for Jesus. Today we're going to talk about a continuation of that desperation that we see manifest through multiple people after the healing of the man who was possessed um, last week. So I'm going to ask you to do what we always do at Family Bible Church. We pray before we enter in Scripture. By the way, do that if you study on your own. Do that if you just read it. I mean, just spend some moments talking to God about what he would show you from his word. And so I'm going to ask you to pray with me if you would. Father God, we just thank you so much for the chance we have to come into your house today gathered in your name to hear from you. And Father, we we come to your holy word because we want to hear from you. And so we ask today, Father, that you would help us, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that you would um, soften our minds, you would open us up, that we would um, not, you know, that we would think clearly, but not be hard against you. We could hear your word today. We pray, Father, that um, the word would not just be heard with, you know, our ears, but be, be listened to and then lived out this week. Would you transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit as we engage you and your revelation through the word? Uh, we love you so much. We expectantly pray this prayer because you were always faithful to answer it. And so we just celebrate that truth today. And we um, enter into this time now with our hearts and minds set before you. Um, nothing of ourselves. Eager to hear from you, Father. May you glorify yourself. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to invite you, if you brought a Bible with you, you can turn to Mark chapter 5. If you didn't bring a Bible, go ahead and grab one on the end of the chair rows. And um, it's going to be on page 702, I believe that's still accurate. Um, And and our Bible is on the end of the chair row. And we're going to cover uh, this passage from chapter 5, verse 22, through chapter 6, verse 6. So it's a big chunk again. We're going to roll through here, and you'll see how it's connected. And I would say even connected to last week, but we had a lot already last week, so kind of a continuation of that conversation. Here we go, verse 21, actually, of uh, Mark uh, 5. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. I just want to stop for a moment. That's a little introductory conversation, meaning, you remember last week he, he had taught on the side of the lake, and then he had rushed across in the middle of the night, in the middle of a storm, to this man who was possessed by demons. And then this miraculous thing happened, and the pigs thing happened. But now we have a story here that he gets back, and he goes back across the lake, and again, the crowds are there, and he's teaching on the lake. So just a little context Uh, we see Jesus again returning to the same pattern. And I would say again, the sense of urgency in the gospel of Mark, that Jesus goes from one event to the other event to the other event continually like this. Verse 22 then. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Okay? Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and he he pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and she may live. I'm going to give you the spoiler, 24. So Jesus goes with him, right? So we have this synagogue ruler named Jairus. I want to say a few things about the synagogue ruler named Jairus because I think it's interesting. To, we can read that and go, yes, let's get to the story about the little girl. We're going to get to the story about the little girl today. But I want to talk to you for a minute about a synagogue ruler named Jairus who hears that Jesus has returned from the other side of the lake and goes to him. Now, why would that be significant? I think there's a few things that are interesting about 
um, what we already know about uh, Jarius, the synagogue leader, um, he would be a spiritual leader in his community, right? Matter of fact, you heard it, he's a leader, one of the leaders in a synagogue. It would be the equivalent of what's a, uh, an elder now in a church. I, I think it's interesting that, that Jarius goes to Jesus. I don't know if you find that interesting at all. You know, Jesus had been teaching in synagogues. As a matter of fact, before this is over today, we will hear that Jesus enters into a synagogue and begins to teach. And so it would be easy for Jairus to sit at his synagogue and say, you know, I'll wait until Jesus comes to me, and there'll be a moment where he'll come to me, and in that moment I'll say, Jesus, I have this sick daughter. Can you please help me with her? But Jairus' life has gotten to a point that he is beginning, he has gotten desperate for Jesus, desperate for hope, desperate for a plan, and desperate enough that he would come to Jesus on the side of a lake, leaving behind his kind of holy trappings to pursue a solution with Jesus. I love that Dale said, the service started today, I, I love how God plans things, by the way. I love that Dale talked about the meaning of names. You know, Jarius is, is a Hebrew name, and it means the enlightened one. Or it means one who brings light. Uh, one who gives light. I think it would be easy for Jarius to fall into a trap that many religious people fall into still today of being the one that has the answers. This guy is a leader in a local church. He's the guy that when people are lost in darkness, they come to him and they say, Jarius, help us out. What does this mean? Will you show us? He's the one that people come to and say, well, will you pray for me? My daughter is ill. And it, I just want to say, it was, it's easy to get into this place, and it would have been easy for Jarius in his um, self-righteousness, in his pride of what he knows. I'm not sure what's happening there. I apologize for that. It would be easy for him to say, um, I'm just going to figure this out on my own. But I love that he does not do that. Let me connect it a little bit, just a little bit to a real life for us. There can be a tendency for you and I in our own lives to say, hey, we know Jesus, we're saved, we believe the good news, we have the scriptures, and, and not be willing to be desperate for Jesus. Jarius doesn't share that problem that many of us have. I was talking to a friend of mine about one of the tragedies of people who begin to lead and serve in a church. And one of the tragedies that, that happens to people who begin to lead and serve in a church is they begin to believe that they cannot reach out for help. They cannot be desperate for solutions. They cannot be beyond their ability to answer the questions anymore. But here we have a testimony of Jarius, the synagogue leader, who has gotten beyond his ability to cope. So much so that he would pursue a rabbi out by a lake for a solution. I want to read more about Jarius here. It says, he came there, now check it out, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and he pleaded earnestly with him, my daughter is dying. My daughter is dying. I, 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 you know, we've seen over and over again in the text how different people have responded to Jesus when they see him. And many people have fallen face down. The way Jarius does it, it's a little, it's a little different. Um, I thought this might be a little weird this morning. It might be a little weird. But I, but I wanted to give a physical 
uh, demonstration, perhaps. So I don't know if anybody wants to volunteer this morning. Thanks, Chris. I knew you would. I knew you would. How you doing, brother? So I'm going to ask you to do something you're totally qualified to do. I'm going to ask you to be Jesus. And I'm going to ask you to stand there like that. Maybe face me. There you go, like that. And I'm going to be Jarius. Right? And you're Jesus. And this is, this is what happens. When Jarius comes to Jesus, oh man, see, it's already getting weird, isn't it? Because it says when he sees him, he comes to him and he falls at his feet. And he said, cries out, oh, would you save my daughter? She's dying. How embarrassing. For a synagogue leader? That's what it looks like to be desperate for Jesus. It means literally he fell and grasped his feet and pleaded. Thank you. Pleaded with Jesus. By the way, did you see what came out there naturally? My daughter is dying. Would you save her? Now, wait a minute, Bill. That's not what it says. It says, my daughter is dying. Will you heal her? You know what it actually says? Will you save her? She's clinging to the end of the age, is what the word says. My little child is clinging to the very brink of eternity. Lord, would you save her? That's the plea. Standing there with this synagogue leader at his feet, Jesus goes with him. Wow. Good news for Jairus. Wow. He just goes. Like whatever Jesus had planned, he begins to go with Jairus. Let's, let's see what else happens. So Jairus has got to be pretty excited right now. Yeah, it worked. The solution is underway. Verse 24b, we'll call it. Check it out. A large crowd followed and pressed in around Jesus. So I get the image here. Now, as Jesus begins to walk with Jairus to Jairus' house, the crowd begins to follow Jesus automatically and press in around Jesus and Jairus. The things start to get crazy. You've heard this story before. Verse 25, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent everything that she owned. Yet instead of getting better, she was getting worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his cloak because she thought, if I touch his clothes, I will be healed. 29. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Marie, one more verse, and we're going to talk about this. 30. At once, immediately, Jesus realized that power had gone from him, and he turned around to the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? Who touched 
my clothes. I want to connect one thing here for a moment. If you're Jairus, and your plea has worked, and Jesus is going to your house, the last thing you want is a bunch of people slowing you down on the way. Just saying. The last thing you want is Jesus to stop his forward motion towards your house where your daughter is dying. You don't want it. And I think it's striking that in this moment where people are pressing in and the crowds are coming after Jesus, right, that he stops what he's doing and says, who touched me? What happened? So we have desperate Jairus, the synagogue leader. Now we have this desperate woman. I, I know you heard it in there, but I want to reiterate a few things. Bleeding for 12 years uncontrollably. Without stopping. The, the word means she had a constant flow for 12 years. She w- could not stop bleeding. That might be a little graphic for church world for you. That's what the Bible says. And you and I might read that and we go, oh yeah, she needed a healing, right? Oh yeah, there was, there was something wasn't right with her. She needed better health care or something. I'm going to give you a little context. This woman was bleeding continuously and suffering continuously for longer than Family Bible Church has existed. Well, just think about that. The first gathering, the first time people met, the first, all the history of our church. And this woman's suffering, if she had begun suffering and Family Bible Church was started, you know, the day after, she would still be suffering right now. She would not have been delivered yet from her suffering. See, I think it's so easy to read these characters and go, oh, it's, you know, it's terrible, but look how fast it's solved. Listen, 12 long, hard, desperate years. You don't think she's desperate? What does it say about her? She sought out physicians, and she spent everything she owned. Good <laughs> to know the healthcare crisis isn't a new problem, by the way. Right? She spent everything she owned. We complain when our deductibles are high. She was desperate. And not only that, but she uh, was not getting better. She was getting worse. For all the effort and all the energy, she was sicker than when she started. She was so sick. One more layer I want to talk about with this, and you've probably heard this talk about before if you've been in church for a while, but it's important and worth saying. There was something unique about the kind of suffering that she was undergoing and that she w- it was a suffering of blood. And if, if you were bleeding, you were unclean in the culture. And, and what's crazy is, this woman in her desperation, not only had she been suffering, and it's been well said, she probably hadn't been touched in over 12 years. I want you to think about that when you're hugging somebody this morning. Someone hasn't been in human contact because in the culture, if I touch you and you're bleeding, I'm unclean too. The whole thing about the good Samaritan, the fact that he went to him, and the synagogue ruler standing on the other side of the street is because he's unclean. And if I touch him, I'll get dirty and I won't be able to go to the synagogue anymore. You know, it's all about this religious holiness, this righteousness, this purity. I have to refrain. And this woman who had likely, if she had been honest about her suffering condition, her friends and family wouldn't touch her because they wouldn't be able to worship God if they touched her. And not only that, but isn't it interesting, this woman who is not supposed to touch anyone smashes herself in amongst the crowd, knowing what that means. 
but believing, and did you hear? Because she thought in her mind, not if I fall at his feet and I beg him, if I get his attention and I say, Jesus, I need you to pray for me, or lay your hands on me, or come. If I just barely nick, if I get any part of Jesus, I might be saved. She believed that she could touch the him, H-E-M, of him, that's all it would take. And she would be saved. Well, of course, just like Jairus, she'd say, wait, the text says, um, if I touch him, I'll be healed. No, the text says, sozo, if I touched him, if I touch the him of him, I will be saved. Check it out, miracle. God in the flesh, incarnate reality. See, I'm trying to preach to you today, not a dead God and a dead gospel, but a real God who is with us and who is pleased when we are desperate for solutions from him that only he can provide. The word says that when she touched the hem of his garment, immediately, instantly, directly. The word means without taking any curvy roads or any switchbacks. It was straight on between her and healing. The moment she touched him, she was healed. Instantly healed. But check it out. There's more. Not only did her bleeding stop instantly, but she felt it in her body that she was freed from her suffering. So not only did the physical manifestation stop, you know, like for a minute, but the word says that she sensed internally that the terror had stopped. The, the word about her agony stopping is like being lashed, strapped to a pole and beat, right? And in the moment, not only did the physical sign stop, but her sense of it, her experience of it, her reality had shifted. It had changed. And she knew it. You ever heard that in church world? If you know that you know, right? That God's touched you. If you know that you know, you've encountered the real God, not a fake God, not a God that somebody's trying to talk you into. Nobody has to talk you into a God that does that. The minute you touch him, he drives into you, and it's changed. And you can't even explain to people what's happened internally, but you say it's different now. It's different now. And this is her experience. If I could only touch him. Oh, wait a minute. When she touches him in the crowd, she's clean. Remember how I said that about she couldn't worship in the synagogue, she couldn't hug people, she couldn't sit on things. I mean, she's clean. Honestly, when I read the text, I don't know how she didn't just start screaming out of her mind right there. You know, it says Jesus had to stop and turn around and say, who touched me? I think it would be pretty obvious. You know what I mean? Woohoo! What? It's, I'm clean, you know. All the religious people around would probably be like, what? I'm dirty. <laughs> you just touched him a minute ago. Settle down. And all Jesus says, who touched me? Why would Jesus say that, by the way? Do you think he didn't know? Look at 32. Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. 
He's just looking in the crowd. He's going to know when he sees. He's going to know when he sees that you're the one that drained power. You're the one that was desperate for a solution. I don't think he didn't know. I don't think he didn't know. I mean, my theology says Jesus knew when that woman was like reaching out the, the second before her finger touched. He's like, oh, here it goes. I, I don't think he didn't know. So why? Why does Jesus want to stop going to Jerry's house to stop, turn around and make this big point about who touched me? Looking in the crowd. Jesus kept on looking. And the woman, knowing that she, what had happened to her, she came, here it is, check it out, fell at his feet. And trembling with fear, she told him the whole truth. I want you to see those three steps, right? After being healed by Jesus, she came and fell at his feet. And she was trembling in terror and fear. Not the fear of being punished or suffering, but a holy, reverent, wow, you're different. You're not what I thought. Even though I thought you might heal me, it's a different thing, fear. And then, don't miss it, she told him the whole truth. How long would that have taken for her to tell him the whole truth about her suffering for 12 years? How long would it take for her to articulate her desperation that she believed if I could just jam my way into this crowd and just touch him, it would change everything? Look at what Jesus says. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be free from your suffering. That's right there. We could do a whole hour on that. We won't. But he, why is Jesus looking? Because he wants her to know it's more than a touch. It's more than the bleeding. It's more than the suffering. I, I believe that what he wants, if you read it, why would he stop and want to make eye contact and have this moment with her? Because it's about a relationship that he has. And look what he says. If you don't believe it, daughter, one who belongs to me, one whom I claim as my own daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be free from your suffering. That's good news for that lady right there right? She's free. She's claimed. She is forever belonging to Jesus. Now, check out how the narrative flips immediately, right? So she has this moment where Jesus sends her out in freedom, and it says this, while Jesus is yet saying these words, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and said this, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher any longer? See, I told you, if you were Jairus, you didn't want to stop and help this lady out. You didn't want to stop and have this long conversation about the truth. You needed Jesus to get there as soon as possible. And here's the story. The guys come and say, your daughter is dead. So don't bother the teacher. Ignoring what they said, check it out. Jesus ain't even listening to that. And he says, ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Jairus, do not be afraid, only believe. Don't, don't be afraid, Jairus. 
that it's too late. Don't be afraid that what they're saying is the permanent truth, that nothing can be done. Don't, don't become despondent. Only believe. It gets more interesting now. Jesus did not let anyone follow him now. So there's a crowd. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. He takes a few apostles with him. And when they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a great commotion. It, the word means a riot. It was pandemonium. It was chaos in the synagogue leader's home. I can't help but believe some of that was a genuine lament, genuine, and some of that was probably manufactured artificial religious behavior. This is the synagogue ruler's daughter. Oh, the tragedy, the tragedy, as if it's less tragic when someone else's daughter dies. You see, it's a riot. It's pandemonium. It's craziness. And they were wailing loudly. Jesus went in and he said to them, why all the commotion and wailing? Why all this noise and fervor? This child is not dead, but asleep. And look at verse 40. This is the crazy little piece of scripture right here. It says they laughed at Jesus. Those who were in the synagogue ruler's house, who had been there when the girl died, laughed. And I thought, that seems out of context. How do you go from like, oh, to like, ha, 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 ha. Uh, a little bit of depth here. It was more like a sneer. More like a snide. More like a whatever. More like an indifference. More like a non-belief. They didn't, they didn't believe it. They laughed at Jesus. And if you don't think that was a problem, look at what it says. He threw them out. I know it says after he put him out, like it's very kind. Would you please leave the room? Can we have the room? It says ekbalo. He cast them out. Get out. Interesting. That those who laughed at Jesus were forced to leave. You cannot stay here. Holy space. After he threw them out, he took the child's father and the mother and the disciples. There were three, right, or four who went with him and those, and they entered into where the child was. So now there's a small group of people, Jairus, who had believed and been desperate for a solution. Jairus had been encouraged when his, his um, servants came and said, she's dead, to not doubt and not believe it, but to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. She invites the mother, he invites the mother into the room as well. So you have this small group of people who truly, truly are heartbroken and care. And he took the child by her hand and he said, Talitha kume. Talitha kume, which means little girl, I say, get up. So much. Speaking in a language that she would know as one who knew her intimately, in a tongue she could recognize, he says, small girl, get up. Immediately the girl stands up and walks around. Wait, this girl is 12 years old. You know, I was wondering earlier, whenever I was reading the text, I was wondering, how old is this little girl when Jairus comes and falls at Jesus' feet? I don't have an exact answer here, but isn't it striking that the girl is 12 years old and that the woman had been bleeding for 12 years as well. And that after 12 years of life, she was clinging to death indeed, 
as they reported, she had died. But these words, Talitha Kume, calls her forth. Little girl, get up. At this, they were completely astonished. He then ordered them strictly to not let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. I don't know why you wouldn't feed your daughter at that point. <laughs> um, but he did. Isn't it interesting that in this journey with Jesus, in this walking down the road, there were so many opportunities to stop believing, to not believe, to not see a solution to the problem, right? To believe it's really over, it's really done. And in this moment, after casting out those who would laugh at him, he says, now check it out. Little girl, get up. She's not dead, but asleep. I wonder what those people who were in the room who thought she was dead before said to themselves later. Was she asleep? Did we miss that? Oh. But to miss the miracle? Jesus left there and went back to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. Here it is. I told you we'd get there. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who had heard him were amazed. Wow, he's a really good teacher, right? But they asked these questions. Where did this man get this wisdom from? What wisdom is it that he's been given, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters still with us? And they began to be offended by Jesus. I just, what, what a shocking turn of events to go from Jesus traveling back and forth with like and healing and doing miracles and casting out demons to him going to his hometown, teaching the same wisdom, the same authority, and then having people go, who is this guy? What, what is he doing? Who does he think he is? Look at what he says. Jesus, only in his hometown, among his relatives and in his own household, is a prophet found without honor. In other words, everybody else is going to get it, but you don't get it. Everybody else is going to believe, but you don't believe. And I, it's interesting, too, that it says among his relatives and his hometown and his house. Those are the places that's the hardest. Those are the hardest places even for Jesus. Verse 5 says, he could not do any miracles there except by, his, by laying his hands on a few sick people and healing them. And he was amazed, what, at their lack of faith. See, everybody now has been amazed that Jesus can do what he can do. But here Jesus is amazed that they don't believe he can do anything he can do. They just can't believe it. He can't believe it. The people who should have known him the best. I just want to wrap this up and talk about that. Is, is there a possibility in our lives that we've gotten to a place with Jesus where he's so familiar that we don't believe he can do anything? One of the hard things about seeing a synagogue ruler who would fall on his face for those synagogue rulers is they go, I'm not going to get that desperate for Jesus. One of the hard things about seeing the woman who will reach out and say, if I only could touch his cloak, I'll be healed, is the rest of us go, I'm going to try the doctor a few more times. I'm going to be okay. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to try this other avenue first. One of the dangers is that we can stop being desperate for Jesus. It's not even okay to be desperate for Jesus, is it? It's kind of embarrassing. You go to your friends, 
talking about your faith, and they're like, you really believe this? And you're like, well, yeah, I believe it. You know, kind of. It's embarrassing to say, yeah. He has the word of life. Where else would I go? I've, I've, I've not found any other hope in this broken world but Jesus. See, that's not nearly as cool as being like, yeah, you know, Jesus is cool. I'll hang out with him sometimes when it works for me. The question is how desperate are we for Jesus? And I'm just saying that because I think we all get there. Are you in a situation where you're desperate? And I'm not saying fake desperation, but I mean, are you, can you get there? Can you, can you really think there are things in your life that only God can bring the solution for? And maybe in your life, you're at a place where you are tired of the people giving you answers and you want to hear from God himself. And you're like, God, I want to know you. I don't know people who know you. I want to know you directly. I want, I want to experience this. I want to have my life changed. I want to see things that, that, that are beyond what I understand right now. I want my heart to be open. I want my mind to be changed. See, I think if, if we're in that space, we're in a great place with God. But I'll tell you, you've got to work to stay there. Well, maybe you don't. I've got to work to stay there. Because it's so easy to go, I'm the enlightened one. I, I know how this works. I'm going to pray for you today, and I, I just want to pray. If there right now is something, and I don't know, you guys all come from different parts of your, your, the world and your life and stuff, and if there's something in your life, you're just like, oh, that thing. I'm going to invite you just to bring it to Jesus' feet with me. Just to come and lay those feet and say, Jesus, I need your solution here. And, and, and maybe there's some stuff that you think, it's not that big of a deal, Bill. How about we bring that stuff too? How about we bring that to Jesus' feet this morning and say, here, Jesus. I'm even going to say, if you don't even believe, you bring that unbelief to Jesus. You say, Jesus, I'm going to leave this right here with you. I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. Let's see what God does with it. <laughs> so that Mike stops being silly. I want to invite you to pray with me in the presence of the Holy God. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we just thank you so much for your word and for the confession of the saints and for those who come before us, for your Holy Spirit's preservation of the word, for your revelation of the word this morning, for the way that you continually stoop to our level to demonstrate your love for us. Father God, I do pray for my friends this morning who are here and just have that desperation. And I'm not trying to manufacture artificially. Father, you know the suffering. You know the pain. And I just want to go with my friends here and bring it to your feet and say, Jesus, here, here it is. Here's my desperate prayer. Father God, I, I thank you so much for a synagogue ruler who is not too prideful to bring it to you. Thank you for a woman who would have the courage to press through a crowd and reach out to cling to you. I thank you for my friends, my family, who steadily, continually reach out and rely upon you as a testimony to me that this is what it looks like to be desperate for Jesus, to lean upon him for our solutions. And then, Father, for all the other stuff in our life, too, it's all broken. It's all broken in some way, and we just want to bring it to you. Would you show us what you would have us to do? Would you call us? Would you maybe give a word of affirmation and say, don't, don't fear that stuff. Just keep believing. Just believe in me. The journey's not over yet, Father. Would you impress that upon the hearts and minds that need to hear it this morning? Father, that we would be changed. That we would be changed to believe more fully the gospel. May you be glorified. We thank you so much for the work you do, the way you do it, and the power, the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives every day. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.